Hello, editor. I just wanted to point out two inaccuracies in your article, Electric City. On page 65, it says... The Electric Eels boasted another unique character in their singer, a white-haired bratty sound-alike of South Park's Cartman, Davey McManus. This is a letter to the editor of Record Collector magazine written by John Morton. He's correcting a couple of slight errors made by the magazine's writers about his old band, the Electric Eels, and he's about to get petty and mad. It was me that had the white fucking hair, the crazed Morton. In your side piece, Eels I View, you wrote... Not that Brian was conventional, he would rubber stamp everyday objects with the slogan, This is art? That again was me, John Broken Hand Morton, who made the fucking rubber stamp and stamped the fucking objects with it. I believe this merits a correction. The editor's response to Morton's furious corrections? Please don't kill us. The names in that 2001 article were John Morton, Brian McMahon and Dave McManus, who were all part of the Electric Eels, a Cleveland proto-punk band who existed between 1972 and 1975. They played only a handful of shows and just had one release, a 7-inch in 1980 released years after the band broke up. They were more or less unknown for over 30 years until they came back from the dead with a reissued LP of Lost Recording in 2014. It was the eye of reissue labels and record collectors that rediscovered bands like Electric Eel, the same kind of people who uncovered the other band in this episode. A funk band turned proto-punk band from Detroit who couldn't get a record contract in the 70s because their name was Death. Don't know how this feels? I like the Electric Eels. I'm Max Easton, and this episode of Barely Human is about some forgotten underground music from Midwest America, made in the space between the death of the hippies and the birth of the punks. It's about the art that occurs in the time between social movements. The term proto-punk itself is awkward. It's some kind of archival taxonomy or stamp collection category, and is backwards-looking by nature, given to a time period decades after the music was actually made. The people involved in proto-punk had no idea about the movements that would come after them that would render them important. And for John Morton of the Electric Eels, he would say only this of the punk movement that came two years after the breakup of the band. Oh, now they get it. The crossover from the 60s into the 70s marked a dark end to the hope promised by hippie ideals. It was in Ohio in 1970 where one of the more symbolic ends to the era occurred at a peaceful protest against Richard Nixon's Cambodian campaign at Kent State University. The National Guard is called out to restore order at Kent State in Ohio. Members of the Ohio National Guard opened fire on the protesters and shot 13 unarmed students, with four of them shot dead. For the use of the time, an event like this delivered a sense of defeat to their optimistic cultural revolution, and they would move on to a period of adjustment. counterculture began to fall silent and meanwhile the corporate music industry began to co-opt alternative figures into the famed 70s songwriters. Qualities like excess, glamour and virtuosic talent were all forced down the throats of the public and this was confusing for the post-hippie kids who wanted to tie their boredom and agitation to something genuine. They were jaded and unconvinced by what was being offered to them, faced with a music that was once countercultural now being bloated and excessive. They had no identifier for their malaise, not yet, so they had to invent a way to oppose all of this corporate takeover before there was an identity marker they could tie themselves to. 
While this time is sometimes treated by mainstream histories as a quiet artistic period, there was something brewing in the US Midwest in a host of bands that sprung up across Ohio and Michigan. And deep in the heart of the Rust Belt in Cleveland sat one of the most wild and under-recognized bands of the era, a group of 19-year-old misfits who called themselves the Electric Eels. The Electric Eels would have no idea that they'd become a revered band 30 years after they disbanded. The response to the band in the 70s was somewhere between disinterest and hatred. Due to their relative unimportance in their time, almost no one documented their existence. There's such scant record of the Electric Eels that's at all reliable that to figure them out, you have to glance over blurry scans of liner notes, archived message board discussions, dead GeoCities pages full of broken links, and even if you were to get lazy and lean on the Wikipedia page, it's littered with the square bracketed citation needed at the end of 19 sentences. The only thing you can rely on is the number of interviews and blogs that the band's members wrote well after the band broke up, when they finally got their dues around their 2014 compilation LP. And even then, the members often conflict each other's accounts of the time, so the whole Electric Eels written record is essentially their word against no one's. The disclaimer for this episode is that not much of what I'm going to tell you is backed up with any evidence that wasn't given by a member of the band or one of their friends. But here's the story of Electric Eels, as far as I can tell. In 1972, three high school dropouts from Lakewood High would go along to a Captain Beefheart show and believe that the support band was so bad that they could do better. Those kids included the crazed John Morton, a six-foot madman who fancied himself as an avant-garde artist. There was the smaller Davey McManus, a singer with a sharp jawline and wild, whiny voice that made him sound like some kind of cartoon character. There was Brian McMahon with his masses of tightly curled hair and his brief replacement, Paul Marotta, who would be the only member of the Electric Eels who would think to put any music they made to tape. They left that Captain Beefheart show and started their band. Beginning with just two guitars and vocals, they created a noisy mess that when it took form, would eventually have them described... The band that didn't fit in with the bands that didn't fit in. And listening to a song like Agitated, it's clear that that brash aggression was well ahead of its time. Where would you fit a song like that into the sounds of the early 70s? The Electric Eels wanted a new kind of rock and roll and were pushing to make something to dance to that suited their nihilistic philosophies. But limited by their lack of skill, it was going to be messy. Shrill, ham-fisted guitar lines fought for space against crashing drums, all while Dave E. McManus howled these bitter catch cries, like Cyclotron, which was a song named after his washing machine. Among all this noisy thrashing around, there was this added conceptual element. John Morton was pushing to tie performance art to the music. They were all fans of New York weirdos like the Fugs and considered themselves postmodernists, 
influenced by the absurdity of movements like Dada. They'd look at the failure of the hippies and with no real musical contemporaries to relate to outside of a composer like John Cage, John Morton would say... Being an artist seemed like a way viable means to get away with a whole lot of societal misbehaving. And that they did. John, Dave and Brian were obsessed with rebellion as an artistic approach and had this need to be against something. They would indulge themselves in shock tactics, they'd call themselves art terrorists, and they were violently confrontational and disruptive. Morton would deface everyday objects around Cleveland with a homemade stamp that said, This is art, as a nod to conceptual artist Marcel Duchamp. And on the less artistic side, he and Brian McMahon would antagonise the city by doing things like showing up to dive bars and dancing suggestively together, purely to start a fight with a homophobe. And in the same name of provocation, they'd problematically and unfortunately adopt the swastika in their artwork. And they'd get some pushback from the people around them. Guitarist Paul Morota would describe their intent. It was confrontational art. It was meant to be satire. We thought we were Lenny Bruce, but our friends thought we were Adolf Hitler. They would practice constantly for a year before they played a show, rehearsing the same songs over and over, hoping they would somehow get better. Morton was supposedly sleeping with three married women in Cleveland, according to him anyway, and he got word of the jilted husbands planning a hit on him through the Hells Angels. So he dragged the band with him cross-state to Columbus, where they'd play the first of only a handful of live shows. And here's what's known of the only shows the Electric Eels ever played. Show number one, Columbus, Ohio. There's no information about what the show was like, but we know what the band was wearing. John wears a worn-down denim jacket held together with safety pins. And meanwhile, Dave E's clothing is covered in rat traps. They drink until the bar closes at 2am, and when they later get arrested for public intoxication, the cops, who nicknamed them Ratman and Bobbin, break John's finger in a beatdown after he need one of them in the balls. Show two, Columbus again. John's finger is still broken, so he tapes a glass slide to his cast in order to play guitar, presumably badly, and the show is shut down by the club owner early. Not necessarily because they sucked, but probably because John brings a piece of sheet metal to the show that he plays with a sledgehammer and some wrenches that he duct tapes to his good hand. Show Show three, Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. The band moves home after John pulls a knife on a neighbour who made a noise complaint about their constant practising, and they finally get to play their hometown. Titled Special Extermination Music Night, the show features John wearing an aluminium foil suit, and all goes to plan, until Dave E starts a lawnmower on stage as a musical instrument, which predictably angers the bar owner who kicks them out and bans them from ever returning. Show 4, Case Western Reserve University in 1975. The last ever Electric Eels show occurs outdoors and devolves into an in-band fistfight that eventually includes the crowd and is promptly shut down. And that is the entirety of the Electric Eels' live music career. The band recorded sometime around their last show, just once, with their own shitty gear, live with no overdubs, straight to a home cassette deck with some cheap microphones assembled vaguely around the practice space. And it's hard to ignore the charm of that shoddy recording style, which has a special kind of power on songs like Jaguar Ride. 
Ohio wasn't receptive to the electric eel, whose interest in the avant-garde clashed with the city's cynicism towards a band of bizarrely dressed youths making noise and trashing bars. Not embraced by the people around them, the band would break up only a couple of years after they could have been accepted into the fold of the punk movement. And while the famed London record label Rough Trade would release Agitated and Cyclotron as a 7-inch in 1978, it was too late for the band, who'd already broken up. An LP compiling a handful of their tracks would have a limited release in 1989 called Having a Philosophical Investigation with the Electric Eels. But again, it was too little too late and they'd be largely forgotten for the next 30 years. It wasn't until the crate-digging music press went into full-blown nostalgia mode in the 2010s that Electric Eels would get found among a mess of 70s rarities. Reissue label Superior Viaduct would come for them in 2014 and release the compilation LP D-Electric Eels, which is now a cult classic. And all of a sudden, the Electric Eels weren't just some band from 1972, but a proto-punk band. The band that didn't fit in with the bands that didn't fit in. And you can listen to it now and hear how far ahead of his time it was. But it's important to remember that they were nobody until the record collectors came knocking. While the Electric Eels waited for their reissue, they all moved on to other projects. Dave E went on to front a number of different bands with the same vocal stylings and John Morton continued his performance art leanings to devise a band named X Blank X, an even more conceptual group with a name set up for the listener to call it whatever they wanted. And McMahon went on to live what seemed to be a relatively normal life until his small amount of fame scored him a book deal to write a memoir in 2017. In that book, he rolls his eyes at X Blank X, calling it Intro to Dada 101, which may be the case, but songs like No Nonsense pick up where the electric eels left off. Not much is known about what the members did between the 80s and the present day, but in 2015, a GoFundMe page drew my attention to John Morton's whereabouts. He'd just been kicked out of his New York apartment and had been rendered homeless unable to cross the border to Canada to live with his girlfriend because of his criminal history. The successfully funded crowdfunding campaign paid for an immigration lawyer to work on overturning the disturbing the peace violation that prevented his crossing, which was presumably successful. And aside from that, word of a reformed X Blank X in 2018 in McMahon's memoir, that seems to be the tale of the electric eel. This beat is really mess. I like death. Of course, there's a story to be told about any long-forgotten band, which is as much about how they got to the present day as it is how the present day found them. Among the rubble of records and tapes laying outside of the formal archive of music history, there's no doubt thousands of stories similar to the Electric Eels. There could be tapes sitting in someone's basement, or worse, no tapes at all. And as to who gets forgotten and who gets rediscovered, sometimes it's just up to the hand of chance. One of the most appealing parallels to the story of the Electric Eels came in the guise of another Midwestern proto-punk band, just a state over in Michigan. Like the Electric Eels, they too stopped playing in the mid-70s and lay in wait for the backwards-looking glance of 21st century record collectors. In 
In the late 2000s, there was a reggae band playing in Bloomington, Vermont called Lamb's Bread. They featured two middle-aged siblings named Bobby and Dennis Hackney who grew up in Detroit. Lamb's Bread would play a traditional take on the genre to festival crowds and released a few albums to enable a small living off their performances. But they had a long musical history that extended back to when they lived in Detroit in the 70s. They didn't talk about their early attempts at making music much, though, because it didn't really go anywhere. Their teenage sons were also music fans, though not so much of their dad's reggae band. They were into punk and hardcore and played in a Bad Brains cover band in 2006 before moving on to form their own original bands in the late 2000s. It was around this time that a friend of theirs started talking about this weird band that was being played at parties. They were made up of three siblings from Detroit who were supposedly playing punk music well before it was a genre, and enticingly, that band had the ridiculous name of Death. They were intrigued, so they looked up this band called Death and found a blog post about a 1976 single released by that band with links to some MP3s ripped from the 45. And after downloading them, the voice that shrieks out of their computer speakers is jaw-droppingly familiar. Bobby Hackney Jr. sits stunned in his chair as he hears the voice of his dad. There are plenty of ways you can tell the story of this band called Death, but it does kind of begin in the late 2000s, with the sons of the band asking their parents why the fuck they were never told about their dad's proto-punk band. It was this intergenerational crossover that linked Death to their growing contemporary interest. Internet chatter and excitable emails among record collectors led to copies of the band 7-inch going up on eBay for $800 US a pop, all of which created a critical mass of curiosity that got back to the senior hackneys. But they were bemused to find that there was any interest in a band that they started as teenagers over 30 years prior. In time, record label Drag City would catch wind of all this and contact the hackneys to talk about a reissue which led to the 2009 LP called For the Whole World to See. It featured seven songs from an original 1975 recording session, including Politicians in My Eyes from the original 45. While that's the brief story of Death's Rediscovery three decades after the fact, and that's all incredible in its own right, it's the reasons why and how Death were glossed over in their time that's kind of interesting too. Back in Detroit in 1971, and Bobby Dennis and Dave Hackney were just music fans learning how to play on makeshift instruments in their shed. They played on things like a homemade drum with butter knives attached to the edges to replicate a snare sound. But soon their mother received a payout after a car accident and she gave part of the proceeds to her sons who waltzed into a music store and came back to fill the spare room of their classic Midwestern American home with amps, a drum kit and a PA where they started a band called Rockfire Funk Express. Then older brother Dave saw The Who and was blown away by the volume and energy and after bringing his brothers to an Alice Cooper concert they all agreed that rock and roll was their future and they began tormenting their neighbourhood. The exposure to these big 70s rock bands had the Hackneys shift their developing sound towards soaring rock riffs undercut by these rolling bass lines and wild drums 
They were beginning to find a lot in common with Midwest heroes like the MC5 and the Stooges. And while people call their music proto-punk in retrospect, they were far too proficient to be lumped into a punk descriptor, which you can hear on songs like Freaking Out. The Hackneys wouldn't know how ahead of the time they were, but they knew there was some pushback surrounding the style of music they were playing. In Detroit, the home of Motown, there was pressure from people around them to move back towards funk and soul, but they knew instinctively that they were onto something. And considering Motown was just about to move their headquarters from Detroit to LA, they were probably right in deciding that rock and roll was the direction they should head in. But what they needed first was a name. In 1974, their father died tragically in a late-night car accident, and this unexpected trauma sent Dave into a mode of thinking that gave him an obsession with the other side. He began to think existentially about life as a waiting room for the ultimate trip towards death, which he decided had to be a fundamental concept that sat underneath this new band that he started with his brothers. When we get home, David says, man, I got this great, great new idea for the name of the band. So he holds us in suspense. Let's run up to the room and find out what this great name is that David then came up with. We're waiting with much suspense, and as soon as he says, yeah, this is the name, dude. Death. Death. Oh, man. So me and Bobby just kind of looked at each other. As if to say, this dude's gone way off the deep end. Despite their cynicism, Bobby and Dennis stuck strong with Dave and agreed to give their band a name that was going to be the roadblock that would hold them back from any success in their time. Death began to write in their spare room, songs that were a rugged but complex take on the rock and roll of the time, all delivered with this unexpected energy that was only just being hinted at in the early 70s like Keep On Knocking, which was written about their neighbours who kept trying to get into their house to watch them practice. In 1975, Death decided it was time to land a record deal. Dave, in his typically mystical way, decided on the publishing company they were going to approach by throwing a dart at a classified section of their newspaper. This drew them to Grooseville Records who were intrigued by the band and agreed to produce their first recordings despite some hesitation around their name. So Death spent a summer perfecting the seven songs they developed in the spare room of their house. It's wild to think of the timing, but Grooseville's label heads travelled to New York and London in 1975, just a year or so before the record labels would begin their desperate spending spree on punk music. But Death were too early to the table, and there was little interest. CBS, Atlantic and Polydor didn't seem convinced, but Columbia Records loved the recordings and offered a $20,000 contract to the band on the condition that they changed their name. Dave, of course, refused, stating that the recordings and the band were intimately bound to the concept that underpinned the name, a bond that could never be broken. (laughs) Columbia raised their collective eyebrows and withdrew their interest. And then Grooseville gave up on the idea of selling the band on anyone and graciously returned the master tapes to the Hackney Brothers free of charge. The band self-released The Politicians In My Eyes Keep On Knocking 7-Inch to zero acclaim and then started thinking about moving on. 
The brothers all moved together to Vermont, where one last straw finally broke them. On arrival in Bloomington, Dave started postering the neighbourhood with signs emblazoned with the word death. And when the cops knocked on their door, accusing them of starting a street gang, the Hackneys grew frustrated and closed the door on the band called Death. Dealing with rejection for our name, rejection for our music, rejection for the fact that we were black and playing rock and roll, rejection for the fact that our music was too fast, rejection for so many rejections. It's a small tragedy that Death called it right as the punk movement kicked off in the major cities. But who knows whether they could have taken off in their time if they pushed to release their LP. They were trapped in smaller cities like Detroit and Bloomington, with a name that immediately turned off conservative record label heads. With no real means for distribution due to their displacement between musical communities, they ended death and formed a gospel rock band called The Fourth Movement, which also faced rejections, this time for being too religious. And then Dave gave up on music altogether, and Bobby and Dennis eventually went on to form Lamb's Bread. But we know the death story didn't end there. While Bobby and Dennis tried to forget about their failures with the band, Dave had secretly kept the master tapes of their original recording. In the year 2000, the three reunited for the last time at Dennis's wedding. It was more or less a normal family gathering, but as Dave left the wedding, he handed over a package to his brother, accompanied by some of the last words he'd ever speak to him. It was just months before Dave would succumb to lung cancer, but he had an inkling about the band's upcoming resurgence. Handing over the original master tapes to Death's 1975 recordings, Dave looked his brother squarely in the eye and said, The world's going to come looking for these. Of course, the world did come looking for Death and the Electric Eels, only through the lens of historians and curious record collectors. While their immediate intentions might have been to make a quick buck off a rare record in their collection, this episode highlights the role of the record collector as an amateur archivist, an unpaid historian who connects the dots of underground histories to tell the kind of stories that most of us don't get to hear. It's unexpectedly important today because someone like Electric Eels, while never really influential in the mid-70s, are now a reference point for contemporary punk bands. Likewise, Death are now known as one of those important bands from the pre-punk space, despite never making a mark in their time. While Death and the Electric Eels are in no way related in sound, there are so many similarities between their stories that it's hard to resist connecting them as related bands. I sort of wonder how many bands were doing exactly what Death or the Electric Eels were doing anywhere in the world at that time, or even beforehand, but never recorded their efforts. Even the stories in this episode are mostly based on hearsay, which isn't a great archive for the underground to be keeping. And this concern about the poorly documented art of the proto-punk space isn't limited to the mid-70s. Who kept reliable records of any of the bands that people like you or I watched or played in over the last 20 years? He just wrote this on the way he, down. He wrote, Dave wrote us a song on the way down. Dan, you're really kind of putting me on the spot right I know. now, but I am, I do have in my hand here a piece of paper, and on it, no, go, no. On it is a song which I just wrote, which is going to be released on my new record label, Christmas Pets. I love it's the name. It's called A Love Meant to Die, 
Would you like to hear it? Yeah, I'd like to hear it. It's called Love Meant to Die. Okay. Day after day, we've been taking each other's places. I tried so hard to live with a love that was me.